Good morning. Today we got to a new chapter of 1 Corinthians. We're going into chapter 8 and we're entering a theme that will be with us for uh, quite a few chapters. Chapter 8, chapter 9, on into chapter 10. So we'll introduce that with the first three verses. The title here, True and False Knowledge of God. Let me read the text while we're on this title slide. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, reading from the ESV today. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, the same is known by God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, help us understand uh, carefully and accurately what you've said so that we may apply it so we don't fall into the traps that are out there for us and that we may have a saving knowledge of you that's grounded in love. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start with the first part of verse 1. where we'll we'll deal with some particular important themes that are kind of setting the table for us for this section. It says, now concerning food offered to idols, that's the topic, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Now you notice that the ESV puts a quotation marks around what I have highlighted in red there. And this it was pretty much agreed upon by the various scholars is their slogan, although some might add we know that as part of their slogan that we can't be sure about, but their slogan had a purpose. So their slogan is all of us possess knowledge. So what application do they go on to make about it? Well, therefore, idols don't have any real ontological existence there pieces of stone and whatever goes on at the idol temple is no big deal we have knowledge we're beyond all that so therefore we can go down to the pagan feast and have food with everybody else I'm just telling you where this is going now that sort of knowledge is what Paul is going to object to so as we go forward as we saw in chapter 7 which started with a slogan It's good for a man not to touch a woman. Paul develops a very careful and nuanced teaching that tells us what is correct and what is incorrect and what we need to believe in, what are some of the applications. Likewise, now, we have a new theme, and the same thing is going to happen. Paul is going to give us detailed theological facts and truth and applications that will tell us what is and is not valid about whatever their view of knowledge was and we'll talk about that I believe the shorter one is correct so I went with the ESV all of us possess knowledge that was their claim food offered to idols as I say on the slide here is a single word in the Greek and uh, that word is idol idolathutas which comes from two words eidolon 
which means cultic images, and thuo, which is a verb that means offer sacrifice. Now, it turns out that in Corinth and elsewhere in the world at that time, with all the idolatry and all the pagan sacrifices and all the temples of idol worship, that food, be it meat or other kind of food, was brought uh, for religious purposes in their worship into pagan temples. And uh, we found out that through historical inquiry that most of the food that's consumed came through that process. Because just think about it. Okay, you, it's hard to get enough food to eat in the ancient world. You have food. You have religious obligations. If you're a pagan, you go to the temple like everybody else. And so you can offer the sacrifice, give it to the pagan deity, and then the food is not going to be wasted. It's, it's either consumed during the ceremony to the pagan deity or sold in the marketplace later. So this is going to create an issue that we're going to be dealing with uh, in various ways as we go forward. So that's what that is. It's a single word in the Greek, food offered to idols. And it was ubiquitous uh, in their world. Notice there's a topic change again, Perry Day, now concerning. So we're under a new topic. And they again have slogan. One thing we can uh, really pay attention to, people love slogans. Eric talked about this last week. And sometimes a slogan can get people's attention and motivate people and uh, be something they can easily repeat, but they can be abused when they come when it comes to learning Christian truth and the gospel. And we've seen that in our day. There are so many slogans that are used and abused uh, in even amongst evangelicals. Charismatics are slogans. So we're going to break this out and see what's true and what's false about it. Paul will sometimes take their word and give it a biblical definition that would be valid. So he's going to bring correction. Now, when it comes to this food offered to idols, the word is used uh, a number of times, nine times in the New Testament, but mostly in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, those chapters. Of all the usages, all but four right here in 1 Corinthians. It was used in Acts 15:29 when they had to decide what to do when Gentiles became Christian, whether this would be acceptable. So in Acts 15:29 it says, after they had the Jerusalem Council, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, there's the word, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well, farewell. So it's not a new topic. came up in Acts. So slogans, words, themes, uh, Claims of elitism, and that's what we're going to focus on. Is knowledge a bad thing? It is not. If you want to uh, turn to this, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 6. This will be reminding us 
of something that we covered a couple of years ago whenever I preached on this. And this is something Paul thanks God about in regard to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 1, 4 through 6. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. So they did have valid knowledge. And what we're going to see is that the knowledge they had was a relationship with God, the true God, who sent his son, who died for sins once for all, and saved sinners, and who has given us truth that's valid and saving that we can know that came from him in Scripture. But they're taking this gnosis and going places with it that are not valid, so it's not an easy thing. Paul isn't saying, you can't have knowledge, it's bad, because he thanked God that they had knowledge. So we're going to have to find out what is valid knowledge and what is dangerous knowledge that can harm us. The word gnosis, she was 10 times in 1 Corinthians. But this one I just read, she used for the whole church. And it's good. Um, let me just cite this one for you, 1 Corinthians 8.11. Then we'll go to the next slide. 1 Corinthians 8.11 and so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So Paul is going to take their slogan, all of us possess knowledge, and bring out nuances of the word, bad applications, correct them, exhort them to what's right and true, and we'll learn. Frankly, the thing that's so harmful in of modern pop Christianity is the idea that everything can be reduced to a slogan and that's all you need. Reduce it to the slogan. Whoever saith something and believes what he saith, he will have what he believes. That one was, is deceptive, taken out of Mark, and it's the basis of the Word of Faith movement. A phrase in the Bible out of context becomes a slogan to be used to beat people with, saying you don't have the knowledge you should because you say bad things. And so whatever went wrong, it's because you mentioned it. Have you ever been confronted with that slogan? So you go and talk to your friends. Uh, my asthma is really kicked up right now because of all the pollen in the air. And they say, aha, it's your fault. Because you just owned it. You said my asthma, like you owned it. You should deny it. You should not even acknowledge it. You should only say, I can breathe perfectly, pollen or no per So you take a slogan and abuse people. So I think that's a good analogy to what's going on here. There's truth to be known, but we're going to have to be accurate, careful, circumspect, and have a hunger for the truth and a willingness to not harm anybody else because we know something, or at least assume we do, that they don't. Let's have the good uh, 
benefit of the, our brothers and sisters in mind. Now let's go to the last part of this verse. Now, I like the ESV because they pull out the slogan part of it. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So here we have a contrast. So the knowledge that is epitomized by their slogan puffs up. Puffs up, we looked at earlier, means literally to inflate, to have to be have an inflated ego, for, so to speak, to be puffed up, make yourself bigger than you are. And that sort of puffed up is bad. Uh, in nature, there are certain creatures that make themselves big to scare everybody away. Like the turkey, boom, now I'm big. There are birds that can go, boom, puffed up, or fish, boom, puffed up. I'm big, you better back off. But in Christianity, the knowledge that we need is the knowledge of what God has revealed about himself, his mercy, his love, his compassion, his forgiveness, and so on. And nothing about that should make us puffed up. If you're puffed up, it simply means you're trying to scare somebody else away. And they don't dare get close to you. So puffed up means make arrogant. It's used six times in 1 Corinthians out of seven total in the New Testament. So they had an elitist claim that goes like this. I know something you don't know. That is so common. Christians are susceptible to it. And as long as I've been a Christian, I've been susceptible to it. And I've seen all of us tend to be susceptible. We want to know something others don't. Well, if we know Christ, we do know in a saving way, we know something others don't. But when we start comparing Christians to each other, and we come in with a haughty, puffed-up attitude, I know something you don't know, and it's a secret, but I'll tell you where you can find it. you got to read this book, or so on. If it's revealed knowledge, it shouldn't puff, to, puff us up. So love builds up the whole body of Christ rather than inflates certain elitists. It's very clear in 1 Corinthians. So this knowledge made them think that they had something that others do not. Let me cite to you, if you want to take note of it, so let me cite to you 1 Corinthians 4, 6, which we covered earlier as I've been preaching through Corinthians. Paul said, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So Paul already set the stage for this in 1 Corinthians Four and verse six. Don't let it happen. Don't get puffed up one against another. Don't go beyond what is written. What is written, we determine, is a phrase used to cite scripture. We believe in the priesthood of every believer grounded in the authority of scripture. And any one of us can have a reading of scripture that's 
applicable in any situation and learning something that you hadn't seen before in Scripture, but it's valid, should give us joy. It helps sanctify us as there are other means of grace as well. It makes us one because the scriptures have been given to the whole body of Christ. And so we're not to be inflated with pride. And we'll have more applications of that. Siampa, by the way, I found out that I've been pronouncing that wrong. Siampa and Rosner say this, whereas knowledge is leading those in the know to expand through inflation with hot air, Love leads others to increase in something more substantial, they say, akin to the growth of a solidly constructed building. Builds up as a building analogy. Built up in a way that will stand the test on a solid foundation, showing that every part is necessary. We'll get to that uh, again, and we'll have other Opportunities to talk about build up. That word uh, oikodomio is used six times in 1 Corinthians. Let's go to verse 2. Thinking one is in the know shows a lack of true knowledge. So here's the irony, amazing irony that Paul has here. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know yet as he ought to know. So he introduces a word here that's going to be important. We're going to have some uh, applications of it. Dokeo is to think or imagine. Eric mentioned it last week when he was talking about Christological heresies. One of them, Docetism, would say Jesus only seemed to have a real body. And that's a heresy. So Dokeo could mean to think or imagine or think something is a certain way. It's more of a subjective opinion, typically. As always, there's a range of meaning. Self-deception is a danger, and Paul corrects it throughout this epistle. The, we know from the fall in the Garden of Eden that Satan's plan is to inflate any one of us through self-deception, getting us to think we're lacking something, we can gain it, and we'll have something better. God knows that the day of, that you eat of it, they, what are you going to gain? You'll be like God, you'll know something you don't know, the knowledge of good and evil. This nature of deception has never changed. So this claim of elitist, special knowledge, we all know is what Paul is warning about. And we should resist it. We, we are so subject to it. And uh, I've noticed this so many times, written about it, from an article called uh, about pietism. We are so dread being an ordinary Christian that we'll go into air that tells us we can be an extraordinary Christian. And I think part of the reason that's such a seduction for many is that we assume Christendom is Christianity, and so we see a lot of ordinary Christians who aren't Christian at all. But for those who know the Lord, they're not ordinary. Dear ones, if you know Christ, your sins are forgiven, you're built on the foundation, 
You're part of the family of God. You're redeemed. You're bound for heaven. And you have eternal life with the Lord. Calling that ordinary is an insult to God. And to go to people who know the Lord and trust him and browbeat them and get them thinking you're not good enough. You're not like us elite ones who have knowledge. I believe is sinful. And Paul lays that out here. It harms people. The word knows in this perfect act of infinity, Dr. Thistleton says the difference of tense in the Greek is fundamental. The use of the perfect infinitive signifies that the Corinthians, or some of them, perceive themselves to have achieved a present state of having come to know. Having come to know. Here's a secondary experience. All you ordinary Christians... We love the Lord Jesus, but you haven't come to know. You're not one of us. You're not an insider. So you're part of the body of Christ, but you're an outsider? What kind of doctrine is that? Well, it's one that's part and parcel of institutional Christendom. You've got to come up with something you have that others don't to justify your own existence, but it's not so. We just need to know the Lord. So um, let me just cite another scholar, Gardner. His commentary has been very beneficial, very, fairly recent one, I think 2018. Gardner says this, The irony inherent in the grace gift of knowledge is that it reveals how little Christians do know or how much is yet to be known. Since knowledge is incomplete and partial, can hardly function as a marker of status before God. Absolutely right. There's more to know. And we'll keep learning throughout eternity because we're finite and God's infinite. We'll never run out of something more to know. Back to Gardner. So flaunting it, he says, brings no benefit at all. However, those who love God reveal in themselves they are indeed authentically the Lord's. They are known. They are known. <laughs> Dear ones, ought, day in the Greek, divine passive, it's necessary. What's necessary to know? We'll, we'll see that. And I have some applications. What's necessary to know is the Lord himself in a saving way. What's necessary to know is his love, his mercy, his kindness, his forgiveness, his condescension to reveal himself to unworthy sinners. There's so much that's necessary, but it's not necessary to claim I know something you don't, so you're a deficient Christian. That is harmful, and it's all too prevalent. I have a statement I wrote here to share with you. There was, there was difference between knowledge all Christians shared together versus knowledge only some elite ones had achieved. The status rivalry issue underlines all of 1 Corinthians. Yes, it does. From beginning to end, there's status rivalry. Beginning at the beginning, 
where it says, I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Peter. They had status rivalry. I'm the great Christian. I have a better thing. You're deficient. That was the Corinthian air. And it's been repeated over and over again. And during the 20th and now 21st century, it's gone crazy. It's out there so much. May God save us from being deceived by the status rivalry. 1 Corinthians 8, 3, our last verse. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So Paul, in a powerful way, takes their word, known, no, gnosis, puts it into a different context, and redirects it in a way that's going to be beneficial to every member of the body of Christ. True knowledge of God is a relationship of agape, of love, known by God. We'll look at some passages about this. Knowing God by his grace necessarily causes proper humility and love for God. That's not to be doubted. When someone is converted, born of God, one of the things we realize immediately is that the people that know God are our brothers and sisters who are willing to associate with people that we used to despise, worship with people we used to avoid, and understand love in a way that we never did because everything was so driven by self and by the pursuit of pleasure and so on. Knowledge of the truth will not lead to elitism, but humility, love, and gratitude. Coming to the knowledge of the truth, as used in, by Paul in one of the epistles to Timothy, is what's synonymous with salvation. If you don't come to the knowledge of the truth, you're still lost. That God may grant repentance, he says, I think in Second Timothy 2, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So on throughout the Bible. Let me cite some. If you want to jot these down, add the verse references. That's the nice thing about the outline page. You can jot on it. That's what I like to do when Eric's preaching. 1 John 4, 9. 1 John 4, 9. Excuse me, I had that wrong. 1 John 4, 19. Put a 1 in front of the 9. 1 John 4, 19. We love because... He first loved us. That's not going to make us elitist. It's going to humble us and give us gratitude and give us something to sing about until we see him. Here's another, here's two verses, John 10, 14 and 15. John 10, 14 and 15. Statement of Jesus, one of his I am statements where he's claiming deity, by the way. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10, 14, 15. Notice the term know. 
It's used multiple times by Jesus regard to him and his sheep, Jesus and the Father, and the, the motivation for action based on this knowledge. So that's what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. He's taking their slogan, we all have knowledge, and saying, you're missing the point. To be known by God, savingly, is the knowledge that's fundamental. Not, you know something ordinary Christians don't. Because that is elitist and has no place in the body of Christ. So, uh, let me repeat that. I am the good shepherd, Jesus said. I know my own, my own know me. Know there is a relational term, not simply cognitive, though it involves that. You can't dismiss the objective reality of it. Jesus is unique. And a great sermon last week where Eric laid out the doctrine of Christ for us. And that's necessary, but it's not enough. What we need also is that this is a knowledge of one we know savingly as our Lord, and we have a love for him because he first loved us. The Father knows me, Jesus said. I know the Father. So this eternal relationship of love between the members of the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is something that we can receive, not in totality because we're created beings, but we can in a saving way. Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep. I'll have to, I can't read all of this. I want to save time, but if you want to jot down this, if you want to do a study on it, Exodus 33, 12 through 17. Exodus 33, 12 through 17. And I'll give you a summary and then maybe read the last couple of verses. So Moses at Sinai is uh, <clears throat> citing that Yahweh said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. So Moses had found favor in God's sight because of God's mercy, much like Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And so then Moses pleads that he would show his ways to help the people, for his presence to go with them. And so it's about a relationship. Let me just cite verses 16, 17. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And Yahweh said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. That's what the Lord said to Moses. I know you by name. If you want to study an amazing, powerful story you probably all have unless you're a fairly new Christian is the story of Moses' life and how God raised him up after 400 years of captivity and how he 
uh, tried to take things in his own hand, fled, comes back 40 years later, the burning bush, and so on. I know you by name. Here's the powerful thing. Everyone who is born of God, the same thing is true. The Lord knows you by name. Cares about you. Cares about every detail. And he's put you into the family of God and we're to have that kind of care for one another. We have an app on that. There's more to be learned and we'll never run out. Let me quickly cite 1 Corinthians 13, 12 and 13, the love chapter. We'll get to it eventually. Should the Lord tarry and everything else goes forward, I look forward to being able to preach from 1 Corinthians 13. But here's a preview. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 and 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. It's an interesting phrase, face to face. It's used in John 1, 1 in a way. Face is prosopon, and uh, the, uh, the Lord Jesus was face to face with the Father from all eternity. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Notice, I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Verse 13, so now we have faith, hope, and love. These abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So that's where this is going. Knowledge puffs up this sort of knowledge, but love builds up. We'll learn more as we keep studying. So I have some applications. First one, whatever God has given is intended to edify the whole body of Christ. Number two, human imagination, I'm thinking of that word, tokeo, to think or imagine, human imagination does not lead to the knowledge of the truth. Three, knowing God is not the achievement of spiritual pioneers, but a gift of grace through God's chosen means. Doesn't that set biblical Christianity over against every other religion? The Dalai Lama, the different cultists, the ones who would achieve some new religion as if they figured something out. But God chooses to reveal himself by his means. Now let's go forward again with an, a preview in 1 Corinthians 12. Mutual care within the body. The overriding theme in 1 Corinthians is correcting elitism and partisan perspective where we're the in-group, the others are the out-group. And much of what's taught in 1 Corinthians has been twisted, abused, and actually made to say the very thing that Paul's correcting. And I, I've told you many times, I thank Dr. Gordon Fee when he published the book, the commentary in, in the late 80s. Wow, did that help me. Most of what I knew was wrong, but I couldn't put my finger on why came to light when I read that commentary in the late 80s. Taking phrases in 1 Corinthians, not knowing that they were slogans Paul corrected, 
applying them as of what things ought to be and getting the opposite of what we're supposed to learn. And what did you end up with? Elitist groups who were better than the other Christians. And when those groups didn't deliver what we thought they would, many of us were left with our hopes dashed and our faith challenged and wondering what would be a valid way to serve God. Some just left, never came back. So let's see if we can get it right. 1 Corinthians 12, 24b through 26. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is what the body of Christ looks like. I thank God, dear ones, for you. I, I, it's amazing when I, you hear about things and people just take action. They visit people. They care for people. They find out what someone's needs might be and try to do something to help. They show up. They pray. They care. And without asking for some kind of a badge of honor for having done so, that's what we hope God does in all of us as we go forward. People have different roles. Some are more visible than others. Some aren't really seen by anybody but the Lord himself. Every last one is valid, important, and honorable. And this we should keep in the context, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait till the Lord comes, who knows the motives and intents of the heart. God is the one who will determine reward in eternity. So care within the body. The word composed here is very interesting. It's a compound word in the Greek, composed, sukeranumi. Uh, and uh, what that word means, sun, S-U-N, in, our, in English, together, and then keranumi, to mix. So it simply means mix together. So who could possibly... Take a bunch of diverse people from any conceivable background, nationality, tribe, what kind of life we had before we came to Christ, what sort of persons we are or were, what kind of things are maybe unique about us, and mix together the body of Christ, all of which attached to the head, in a way that every member is honored and important and cares for one another. God does that. We can't do it. You can't contrive some human psychological process to do this. That's the air. That's the air of Christendom. They give you some test to figure out who you are and then try to be the ones who mix it together. Oh, you are what, what, Myers-Briggs. Have you heard of that one? 
they require you to teach. He says, oh, you're this and you're over here and you're there. And so we're going to work it together. It's impossible. You know why? Only God can take a people and make them a people. So why do they bring this stuff in? Because the institutional church is filled with many, many, many unbelievers. And what I'm talking about here only really happens when people know the Lord. That's what we're talking about. The knowledge we need is a saving knowledge of the Lord. So we don't know the Lord. We're just religious consumers drawn in by all the programs and wanting to be in a church. And then because people don't know the Lord, you teach this and you get blank stare. Well, we'll bring in the Myers-Briggs and you can take the test. And then we'll find out who you are or some other thing. That's the problem. Let's just go by scripture. And so the mixing together is what God does. We saw that in Sunday school, we're talking about Ruth. How did Ruth, with her background, end up in the lineage of Messiah? God knows how to get put together the people of his son, Messianic people who know the Lord. Again, I'm going to cite Gardner. Paul's intent is to make it clear that simply because the foot might say it is not part of the body does not make that statement true. The foot can say that it is not a hand, but it's still part of the body, says Gardner. Under pressure from the elitists, some may feel like or even say they do not possess the grace gifts the elitists have and that they therefore do not belong. Yet, says Gardner, the fact of the matter is that they are part of the body. Whatever the strong may imply about others or whatever the weak may feel about themselves, all are part of the body, meaning all the redeemed. That's the catch. That's where this ends up going astray. All meaning hundreds and hundreds of religious consumers, 10 of which may know the Lord. You can't do this with that. The hundreds and hundreds that aren't even born again, who just signed a pledge or decided they were going to find their purpose or whatever it is they're doing, uh, they don't know the Lord. So then this doesn't even apply. They're not part of the body. They're just going to church. But you can organize them and you can do social engineering and get this whole thing going. It's not Christianity. It's not the body of Christ. And it brings in all this stuff because that's all there is. Dear ones, if you know the Lord, you're part of the family of God, and your sins are forgiven, and your heart is filled with the love of God because of the work of Christ, and you're put together with people who know the Lord, there is already unity that God created. And the things that we do either accentuate that by pointing us to the Lord his grace or harm it by making elitist claims. There's nothing wrong with saying that you're a sinner saved by grace. I've heard people mock that as well, but they shouldn't. Let's look at this idea of knowledge as, uh, and this imagination part. We're going to look at it, Jeremiah. When I was thinking about this, I thought about passage in Jeremiah and how so many things went astray in Jeremiah's day. And some of the amazing 
of words that are uh, in Jeremiah. Here's Jeremiah 23, 25 to 27a. I have heard what the prophets have said. This is the Lord speaking, who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own heart, who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams they tell one another? In Jeremiah's day, a valid prophet the Lord can appear to, and does appear to valid prophets in a dream. And what they receive from the Lord is objective content about God, his plans, prophecy about the future, things that pertain to the present. In Jeremiah's day, Babylonian captivity will happen. He ends up in Egypt and he's called the weeping prophet because things were so bad, they threw him in a cistern. But there were prophets who dreamed up something that people want to hear. Don't listen to all this negativity. We're going to be okay. Things like that. False prophets claim to know something most people do not. They imagine they know something. That's what we saw in 1 Corinthians 8, 2. Um, here's one you want to know. Jot this one down. I'll cite it for you. Jeremiah 23, 16. Jeremiah 23, 16. Very amazing verse. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to words of the prophets who are prophesying to you. They are leading you into futility. Notice this. They speak a vision of their own imagination, not from the mouth of the Lord. Nowadays, you want to be a prof apostle or a prophet, what you need is a really big imagination. Literally, it's just the opposite. Imagine something nobody ever thought of before. And uh, we've been doing a podcast for critical issues on that. People imagine, oh, you got unsaved relatives, here's what you do. Anoint a prayer cloth, cut it into little pieces, pray over it, sew it secretly into their clothing. They walk around, get saved. It's just somebody's imagination. Why reward imagination, which isn't the word of the Lord? The word of the Lord has been given once for all in the scripture. But our culture rewards vivid imagination based on nothing of substance. Jeremiah 23, 16. think or imagine. What is the message of the false prophets? It's pretty consistent throughout the Bible. Jeremiah 6, 14. They have healed the brokenness of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Shalom, shalom. Peace, 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 peace. Say it, maybe it'll happen. The Lord says, there isn't any. There's apostasy, there's rebellion. They don't even know me. They're just using their imagination to appeal to the masses. But there's no peace. Ezekiel 13, 10. It is definitely because they have misled 
my people by saying peace where there is no peace. And when anyone builds a wall, behold, they plaster it over with whitewash. You know, you could be now with modern technology, artificial intelligence, the ability to create a scenario that looks like reality out of creatures that don't really exist, the animations, the, the ability to make something look like it's real when it's not is amazing, frankly. But it has no value in knowing shalom, well-being, salvation, being right with God. All of that is an illusion. And they can make some pretty amazing illusions, but it's not real. We want to know the truth, true peace. One more passage, one, 2 Peter 1.16, 2 Peter 1.16. Let me mention what Peter said about it. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths, Greek is muthos, when we made, made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, the other apostles, were eyewitnesses. They didn't have their own imagination to create a new religion. They spoke words of sober truth. Jesus Christ is truly who he claimed to be, the sinless Savior, the promised one, the Messiah, God, the creator, come into his own world. Objective truth. This is more from Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Very, very important when it comes to interpreting our passages in 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, because it shows this is grounded in the Old Testament revelation. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord Yahweh. Look at that. Don't boast in whatever would make me or you or any of us better than somebody else. Don't do it. There's one thing to boast about. That God is merciful to sinners. And that those who know him do so because he first loved us and gave a plan of salvation, a plan of redemption and forgiveness. Don't boast in all the things people boast about, but that you know the Lord. If anybody says he knows, he knows nothing as he ought to know. The knowledge we need is to know the Lord in a saving relationship. Maybe today, as I'm preaching this, some don't actually know the Lord. Maybe this just sounds like some uh, odd way of going about things to tell people what the Bible says. But let me explain what that means. 
God who created the world out of nothing, the triune God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sent a son, co-creator, came into his own universe, was born of a virgin. Many, many Bible verses in the Old Testament. Some have mentioned after our Sunday school, we were talking about all these different connections. Nobody could make it up. The best explanation of the Bible is it all really happened. We couldn't dream that up. It was over many thousands of years that it was written. This is true. He came into our world. Scripture's fulfilled. The lineage is there. He was, uh, we have the, the proof. He lived a sinless life. He was affirmed on the Mount of Transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. He predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection. He died for sins, shed his blood, so that anyone, no matter how vile and hopeless, could find free redemption, forgiveness, atonement, eternal life, hope, and be part of the family of God. That's worth singing about, as we do. That's worth rejoicing in. What does he ask? How can we know that? How can we know the Lord? Well, what he says is repent and believe the gospel. Rather than living for self, living for pleasure, boasting in whatever we boast in, or trusting in man, we need to turn to the Lord, who is a wonderful, merciful Savior. And we turn to him, turn from our wicked ways, and trust in him, and believe in him. And we know and believe that he died for sins, we believe that he was raised on the third day. We believe that he ascended bodily into heaven, where he reigns from the right hand of God, and that he's coming again. And the way to avoid wrath, his wrath against sin, to avoid hell, is to turn to him in faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. Not just rescued, but brought into a relationship with God where you know the Lord. One more passage. We don't have time to expound on it, but the good thing about 1 Corinthians, we'll have many, many chances to do so. Let me just read the passage. If we got a few minutes. I'm thinking about this word dokeo, to think or imagine, that showed up in our passages. 1 Corinthians 14, 37. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet, or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. In other words, if you don't accept that Paul is a valid apostle, as were others, he's the last. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about that. And that came to be an apostle that Jesus appeared to, and he's writing the truth from God. And if someone is saying, no, I'm not going to listen to anything Paul says, then they're not recognized in the church. And thinking you're a prophet doesn't make you a prophet. Wanting to be a prophet doesn't make you a pro prophet. Wanting to be an apostle doesn't make you an apostle. God appointed the foundation, but foundational apostles and prophets, as it says in Ephesians. The ones that come just have their imagination. They want to make it more than that, but they can't pull it off. 
They can say, we're going to have a miracle meeting and all these things are going to happen. And they claim it did. Jessica and I were talking about this as we were preparing to uh, do our latest uh, recording. They say limbs have appeared when someone had no limb. There's no proof that it ever happened in any of these meetings. Never ever is there proof. They just make the claim. Fake it till you make it. That's going to create a miracle. It doesn't create a possible. So think is okay to imagine. It's worthless. It's worthless. Imagining doesn't cause you to know the Lord. Imagining doesn't make you part of the family of God. Imagining doesn't mean you've escaped from God's wrath. This knowledge is a relational knowledge that we have because of God's mercy and grace that the creator of the universe has made a way for us fallen sinners with nothing to offer to come to know him. And how he uses us is his business. It's ours to care and, and love one another and more fully love him and know him as we look forward to his return. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your kindness, for allowing us who had nothing to go for going for us to look into these things which are so glorious. Help us to have this care for one another that we read about in your word. And Lord, I pray that today someone will hear this and come to know you. And Lord, may we be circumspect and look to you and not to ourselves so we may avoid being puffed up. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done and for who you are. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.